Hi there, thanks for joining me this week for the 27th episode of the Sports Stories podcast, the podcast where we do our best to share great stories and insights of some fantastic people who have gained from working in sport, with the hope that these stories and insights provide you with the inspiration and motivation to become the best version of yourself. Now, today's guest is Ian Braid. Ian has had an involvement in sport most of his life as a volunteer and eventually found himself as the CEO of the British Athletes Commission. More recently, Ian has become more involved with the very topical and relevant areas of duty of care and mental health in sport. I do hope you enjoy today's pod. As always, I will share my reflections and pose a couple of questions at the end. I continue to be blown away and humbled by the feedback I am receiving, so thank you, and please keep in touch via the usual social media platforms. I've also got some great announcements to make, so please join me at the end of the podcast. So let's get on with today's pod. I'm delighted to welcome MD and founder of Dokia Sport and a key voice and influencer on matters related to duty of care and mental health in sport. Please welcome Mr. Ian Braid. Ian, it's great to have you on the Sports Stories podcast. So thanks ever so much for giving up your time. Um, I'm really looking forward to speaking to you, more so to find out a little bit more about Ian the person, but also just to hear a little bit more about the great work that you have done and are continuing to do. As a way of kicking off, you know, it'd be great if you could just let our listeners hear a little bit more about how did you first get involved in sport and why? I'll give you an early childhood memory, relatively early anyway. I lived in a town called Fleetwood in Lancashire for my first 18 years and uh, fishing port devastated by the Cod War in 1973. Always was a desperate town. Um, more football than anything else, but long way from my brains to my feet, so I couldn't wait to play rugby. Um, I remember uh, when I would have been in my early teens, I have a sister who is four years younger than me, and and I made sure she knew it. A, uh, my dad worked in retail, so of a weekend, my mum was in charge of myself and Julie. And one Saturday afternoon, I must have just pushed my mother to the limit. And she just said, I don't care what you do, just get out, just get out. I mean, like, you know, not move out permanently, but just get out. The, um, and I walked up to Fleetwood Rugby Club, and it was in the summer, so there was no rugby on. Uh, but the club had put something in the local paper, the Fleetwood Chronicle, about looking for volunteers to pimp up the clubhouse ready for the new season. Um, and I drifted to, to Fleetwood Rugby Club and I walked in and of course the guys on the committee and so on and so forth didn't expect to see this pimply 14-year-old rock on and, and said something to the effect of, Ian, uh, there's no games on today, we're just decorating the clubhouse. I said, that's what I'm here for. I'm here to help. And uh, two things. One, Somebody had a portable record player, 1970s man, portable record player playing the Carpenters. So if ever I hear them playing, it makes me think about that Saturday afternoon. And two, in retrospect, that was my first foray into volunteering in sport. Um, and I, I played for, I went to the local grammar school, but I played Fleet Rugby Club, made my debut first team 15. Um, and that was the that's the beginning of my journey in sport, I guess. And and is sport in the family then, Ian, as well, or is it just did you kind of gravitate towards rugby? Or- no, not at all. The um, no, my dad played for the school rugby team back in the day, uh, but didn't do anything else. Uh, didn't pursue sport as an adult in any shape or form. My mother uh, neither. Uh, I don't know how it is I've got any ability to uh, run fast in a straight line or do whatever because I seem to be the only one in the family that does it. Uh, yeah, so no, I, I don't, I don't, I generally don't know where it's come from. And so that was a, as a volunteering kind of role within sport. Did you continue playing and volunteering? Is that how you kind of kept connected to the sport? <laughs> Somebody who worked, when I first started work in, in the 1980s, once said in my annual appraisal, Ian is a great team player as long as he's in charge. And uh, and I think, you know, from the get-go, I think rugby club, I captained the Colts, 
uh, and that got me a place on the Fleet Rugby Club Committee, so I probably learnt a lot, didn't say very much. Played rugby at university, um, the Manchester, uh, again on the committee. So I, yeah, no, it, 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 as much as being in charge, it's not necessarily bad things. You know, I like to get involved more in, yeah. in, in what I do. So, so I've always done some volunteering. And interestingly, bear in mind, I, when I went to Manchester University, like everybody else at 18, I was going to change the world. And I was going to change the world in, uh, environmental, in environmental impact. I was green, said he modestly, 10 years before his time. Left university with a master's in pollution and environmental control. Got me precisely nowhere. So I wallowed in financial services. I'm like, right. but, um, but I volunteered all that time in sport. And actually, some of the best jobs that I've done, either as a volunteer or paid, have come out of that voluntary side rather than the professional getting paid side. And then what do you get out of doing the volunteering in sport? I like I like being part of a team. Right. The um, interestingly, for me anyway, maybe at least one listener. Um, in 2010, there was the World Duathlon Championships in Edinburgh, run by run. And by this time, I was the as a volunteer, the major events director for British Triathlon Sun Board. So I chaired the steering board that delivered those, those championships. Oh. And a couple of weeks ago, I wrote to a few of the people that helped deliver it and said, we can't let this pass. And so six of us got on a Zoom call, reminisced, caught up, all of that, um, which is great in itself, but also we, and I subsequently found a book that confirmed it. We talked about uh, the legacy of that event. And it actually wasn't too shabby. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and so it, it's all, it's, you know, I'm not doing it for profile or vanity or whatever, but I just genuinely get a lot out of it and doing something that improves events, people's lives, people's sport. What really strikes me, though, Ian, is that that's quite a serious position, you know, where you can have a real huge impact on a quite a big event. And as you say, leave, uh, you know, a real great legacy. And uh, you've managed to navigate your journey through to that position as a volunteer. You know, and I'm just wondering here, what, what guidance or what tips would you give to somebody who volunteers in sport, who wants to actually really fulfill their potential and their dreams and actually get something really substantially out of that? And I'm just... Because there's so many volunteers in sport, isn't there? And it just, I wonder how we can really inspire and encourage further people to come. Well, you, you say there's lots of volunteers in sport, and I'm sure there are in some, and in some roles. But I don't know what the effect of COVID's going to be in terms of, you know, I think about um, match referees in a, in a football game who were getting abused by uh, 11 players and people on the touchline every Saturday afternoon. Yeah. And you know, I could have been seeing my granddaughter. So there's lots of, yeah. I, I, I think the volunteer sector in sport, which it needs, as you know, so, um, I think it's at risk. Um, I, the, the only thing I can say is, is almost like follow your instincts and follow your heart. Right. All, of the, all of the things that I've done in sport, right, stem from a phone conversation in 2004 I had with the chief the then chief executive of British Triathlon, I called Norman Brook, who I didn't know from Adam, but I was a triathlete, and I was working in this in a professional capacity in a consultancy. And I thought, I know we could do something with British Triathlon, so I ring this guy out. Norman, you don't know who I am, but I'm Ian Braid, PTA member 67890E. Uh, this is what I do. Norman said, everything's worth the price of a cup of coffee. Let's have a meet. And I have used that 
ad infinitum with my kids or anybody else who's prepared to listen. Norman and I met, right? I put the suit on, which is novel for a triathlete, <laughs> give him the full beans, and he says, don't need any of that, but we need people like you. I've got this problem. I want you to be the secretary of the Southeast region of British Triathlon Association. Because in 18 months time, I need it to merge with its neighbor. Otherwise all my funding gets cut off from sporting. I didn't know what I didn't know, right? But I went with it and I trace all of the good things. <laughs> sort of but I trace all of the good things back to me Everything's worth the price of a cup of coffee. And when you said he wanted people like you, what, what are people like you? Mugs. <laughs> <laughs> and? No, yes, good point. The, I don't know. I think he... I, I don't particularly enjoy sort of pumping my own tyres up and saying what I think that is, right? You'll have to speak to Norman. The, um, <laughs> but I think he... I don't know. I think he saw somebody who uh, had a degree of common sense, uh, been around the, I mean, I, I was there, I was in the uh, late 30s. The, um, so I've been around the block, he said, I've been around the block, got a bit of common sense. Can I be trusted? He must have thought, take that view. I'll take a punt. And uh, so I joined, and anyway, didn't let the guy down, because yeah. we moved. I, at the, AG, at the prep for the AGM for the Southeast region, the chair, who's a brilliant woman, a fantastic uh, a volunteer par excellence, a woman called Nina Ford, she was the chair. Ian, what are we going to do about the positions for the AGM? I'll stand the chair again, because everybody seems to like the cakes that I bring to the meeting. <laughs> what do you think? I said, Nina. I said, you're absolutely right about those games. I said, I'll tell you what, why don't we just swap roles? You bring the cakes, cakes, make some notes, and I'll share the thing. Oh, would you? Um, yeah. So I did, so I became chairman, right? Which is, you know, it wasn't a great queue of nominations, let's be honest. They smacked the two regions together, and I walked away then because I, I didn't know what I didn't know at the time about governance, but things smelt wrongly. And although the president of BTF and the chair rang me up and all sorts of stuff, no, I went and did something. 2007, three years later, I'm flogging financial services in sport. So I'm in Loughborough, where, you know, center of the universe for many. And I'm in the student union, and this bugger Norman Brook rocks up who I haven't seen, for, seen nor spoken to for three years. Ian, I was about to ring you. No, you weren't, Norman. I haven't spoken to you for three years. <laughs> what do you want this time? We've uh, reconstituted and we're now the British Triathlon Federation. Got a new board. Da, 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 da. Uh, and I was ringing you because I want you to be the major events director. Oh, yeah. We've got a JD, which is... Huge progress, right? Good job description. She gives me this job description. Um, no, it says the job holder will either have organised major events in sport or been in them. You can have it back. Shut up. Come and meet the president. And, and again, big leap of faith from uh, Sarah Springham, who was the chair. Um, and I became the major events director with a curriculum vitae that was a plain, plain piece of white paper. And this was at the start of the London cycle when the triathlon was going to be in Hyde Park and we had all this other stuff. So what skill set or what strengths do you bring or did you bring or did he see in you? Just to um, give a sense of, you know, what, why did he invite you into that role? You must have given something else. And I'm just conscious of those people listening in here thinking, Actually, what, what are the transferable skills that I maybe have which can actually really help me find a way forward? Well, actually, one of the, there's something about trust and integrity. Yeah, yeah. Uh, probably in his eyes, improved by the fact that I walked away from the organisation three years previously because I didn't like it. it smelled. 
right. they, um, they were sure, let me tell you that, right? They, could, they couldn't find somebody. So, right. and I also think that, uh, and we had a stand up row about it because Norman, Norman wanted to bid for, um, there is now a world triathlon series, but it was, yeah. it, it was in a very embryonic form in 2007, eight. And he wanted he wanted to bid for it in London, and at my, one of my first board meetings, which was a telephone conference, I, Sarah, the press said, uh, "Major events director, uh, what do you think?" And I said, "If we do this, we'll make the organisation bankrupt, and therefore, the major events director he's saying no." And Norman went nuts, right? Because I think he thought I might have been a bit of a rollover. Yeah not knowing what I didn't know, but as I said to him when we were stood toe-to-toe, the, my responsibility and duty was to the members and the organisation that wasn't to him. I, I suppose one of the things that I have done and reasonable at is bringing people together for a common purpose. Yeah. Um, and you know, at the aforementioned Edinburgh Duathlon, right? Yeah. On the steering board, I was the only Englishman. Uh, and the chair, which is what I pointed out to my Scottish friends from time to time. He, uh, he, uh, but Sarah wrote me a very nice letter after after we delivered it on budget, two million pounds worth of economic impact into Edinburgh. Yeah, like <laughs> he, she said that was a political masterclass. Um, and so you have all these people with vested interests or aims and ambitions. Yes. And they may not always align, and yeah. I had to bring those people together. So I'm hearing that about that, that skill of bringing people together. That there was also something about honesty and integrity, and 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 living your values and your beliefs. You know, when you felt that the event would not be a success, you you stood up and um, and said so. You know, and there's there's and you mentioned the words integrity. You mentioned the words trust. Have been all kind of common ingredients that you picked up or demonstrated along the way here. Yes, I think that's that's a reasonable summary. Um, and and when we talk about my uh, time at the British Athletes Commission, if we get to that in this conversation, I only mention that now because um, that was hugely about trust and integrity and me. Um, walking the walk. So, so, so tell us a bit more about that role. So you were the chief exec there of the British Athletes Commission. You know, I, I guess you must have taken some of your experiences and learnings from that earlier part of your career into this role. But tell us a bit more about that job and, and why you did it and what it was about. The, well, I, I was still trying to work out what I want to be when I grow up. Um, now into my 50s in financial services and ensuring this organization, the British Athletes Commission, was my uh, passport out of financial services for good. The, and for the benefit of uh, people listening, the BAC is an athletes union. It's like the PFA. Well, let me tell you, the CEO was paid substantially less than 2.4 million pounds a year and the good Mr. Taylor. The, I, I suppose I was networked well enough in sport as well, and I, knew, and I knew the chair at the time. And in 2011, she rang me up and she said, I'm in the shift here. I've just been told by the FD that we've got two weeks of money left, and I don't want the BAC to fall over on my watch. I said, this was early 2012, so this is the year of the London Games, right? And the BAC's members, at the time, there were about 1,540 sports. 98% of them Olympic and Paralympic sports. So the members of the BAC were ripping up trees and giving us that fantastic feel-good factor for a month. Um, and their association was in disarray. So we formed a bit of an emergency committee and we did a presentation to UK Sport, who were funding it. And they eventually said at the back end of 2012, 
well for the Rio cycle, we will give you a one year money guaranteed and three years in principle, subject to a list of TNCs as long as you're out. And I said to the chair, I'll do this. Um, and again, no really great experience in performance sport. But it, it sort of felt like, yeah, I really could do this. And the, there was a story with an athlete that made me realize how important the BAC was that I dealt with in 2011 as a favor for somebody. So, so that's what I did, did it for five years. Um, and part of me still wishes to this day that I could still sit in front of the telly and, um, and window make and just think about how, how fantastic it was. But, and it has been fantastic in terms of medals, but um, it has all come at a cost. And although the BAC, when I started in 2012, it was in special measures, so we had to get it out of that. And as I started to build its profile, in the performance sector, people started to come forward. Athletes seeking advice, support, and guidance, and it was the first time for many that they felt they had that support. So, yeah, my curiosity is here, the organisation being in special measures, but that's not a reflection on the importance and the need for the organisation, is it? I mean, because no. they could be the same thing, but they're actually very different, aren't they? Um, they are hugely different. They, the BAC had only been in existence since 2004, since the end of the Athens Games. Right. And it was run, it was run mostly by athletes, for athletes. Okay. And the athletes were, that were on, were running it, were running it, uh, were in many ways brilliant, uh, but in many ways had not had any exposure to running of organizations. Mm -hmm. And, in the last, in the last, in that London cycle, four years of London cycle, there'd been an agreement between the, the then CEO in 2008 and UK Sport to reduce the funding of the organisation by 25% each year because he believed that it could be genuinely independent. And there were a number of things that, that completely undermined that. So, some of it was lack of governance, some of it was lack of experience. It was not for lack of purpose and genuine intent to do better for others. Um, and when, when I joined and I wrote to all the board then and said, here's a copy of your registration of uh, a company's house, this is what it means, and they resigned. And, and I don't blame them for that, so I had to start from scratch. Um, and yes, it's, I mean, uh, there are other people running it now, but, uh, and I'm delighted to have left it in a place where I was able to pass it back to them to say, look, I'm done here, I'm cooked. Um, your turn, you run with this, because the athlete runs. So can you give us an insight into the, the kind of the work that it did? Because, you know, the idea of a, a union in sports is probably a bit alien to many people. And I'm just wondering, you know, what, what's its purpose? Um, what was the value? Why, why did it exist and, and who really benefited from it and in what way? I, I only talk about it as a union now because when I was CEO, you know, that word union in, in those sports was an anathema. The, um, and so if I give you some of the, some of the highlights, for instance, um, as a result of having to deal with um, three athletes who'd attempted to take their own life in three different sports in 2014, I got mental health as well as physical health included in the uh, insurance scheme that covered the well-being of athletes. I was um, asked by Baroness Tanya Gray Thompson to help her when she was asked by the government to do a review of duty care in sport. And that changed the narrative. Um, by the time I got to, in 20, 2016, uh, 2015, 2016, I was involved in 
help the, the drafting of selection policies from Rio to make them more equitable. And also, in a few sports, sat on their selection panels to make sure that they were fair. So uh, that was, you know, that was all good stuff. And and critically, although it cost me my own mental health in the end, but after 2016, after Rio, when the system was yet again, rightly so, very pleased with itself about how many medals it had won. But a number of athletes across a number of sports came forward to the BAC, um, making allegations which amounted to systemic abuse uh, or bullying or whatever. And, and I, um, I had to support those athletes. And I think, you know, the visibility and the traction that sadly gymnastics is now having to go through is a consequence of if the athletes have got a genuine grievance, then they should be heard and they are being heard. I think that is quite a strong thing. It's amazing, isn't it? Powerful stuff. And, you know, you were, you were involved in this, what, six, eight, ten years ago, this was all going on for you and also what was going on in the sport. And, you know, it's the BAC in a, in a stronger place now in terms of its recognition of the role it could play and the support it gives to athletes. Yes, I think it has got a stronger view. If you look at, for instance, um, what's going on around gymnastics, mm-hmm. the BAC has, is working with uh, the Child Protection Sport Unit, the NSPCC, in uh, a confidential helpline. So it has that, you know, huge visibility. Now, it will have worked very hard with in the build-up to Tokyo, um, with selection, selection policies, so forth. So it has, it had no presence and no visibility in 2012. Um, and it has now, and I think it's been highlighted in its role with government, which ultimately funds all these, uh, is these sports. It's in a far stronger place than it was um, when I joined, sure. I mean, you mentioned, you know, the role that you played and we, um, you know, we could spend a, a long time sort of digging into what went on. And, you know, you mentioned some big things around, you know, obviously mental health and people looking at taking their own lives and that's serious stuff. And then you also, you know, paid reference to the fact that it, it took its toll on you. How did it take its toll on you? And what did you kind of take from the experience? Um, it took its toll on me. Um, because when I eventually realised I needed help and sought it, the psychotherapist, uh, Bev, that um, I still speak to pretty regularly now, not as a reactive thing, but as a proactive thing to try and prevent me falling off the scheme. But she said, Ian, uh, you've had five years of vicarious trauma. Um, so... Um, I had uh, a couple of wake-up calls in 17, May 17. My son saying to me, Dad, do you think you're working too hard? And that made me take my earplugs out. Because it was him, it was Harry. And I said to him, I don't know how to relax anymore. And that scared the life out of me. And the following week after that conversation, uh, there was a new arrival in uh, Chateau Braid, uh, which after a big big campaign by Mrs. Braid, <laughs> was the arrival of one Fred Braid, at the time a 12-week-old, soft-coated Irish Wheaton Terrier. Wow. And the house was just giddy and joyous and chaotic. And I had never felt so lonely in my own house. And that made me realise I needed to do something. So, um, signed off work, went back to work to um, negotiate an exit, uh, which I did. Um, and it has uh, sort of driven me ever since. Um, I thought for five years my sense of purpose was what I was doing at the BAC, and then all of a sudden that just. But in conversations I had with other 
uh, leaders in sport, despite the fact that men of a certain age from the north of England aren't supposed to talk about their mental health. Did. And the response I got was huge um, and consistent. Ian, I know three people like you. Ian, I'm on six pints a night. It's the only way I can cope with this. Ian, I'm on 350 milligrams of herbs. And I suddenly thought, Who's looking after the people, looking after the people? Um, and <laughs> despite Mrs. Braid thinking I was about to ride off into the sunset and do a outstanding six-year to-do list that she'd been writing for me since 2012, I said to her, I've got to go again. Um, I don't think I'm finished. And is that the sense of purpose kind of thing that's come to light, do you think? Is that, it, it, that, that whole up and down of that experience has made you reflect on actually what it is you are really here to do and, and need to do. I, I, I think one has uh, a number of senses of purpose, to be honest with you. Right. Father, father, son, etc., etc., as well as professional. Um, but I care about sport and I care about people. Um, and, you know, I'm a trustee of a charity called Sports Aid, which recognises young talent in sort of 12 to 18. Yeah. And Diane, that is Mrs. Braid, uh, Diane used to say to me, if you know what, what's going on in high-performance sport at the top end of the talent path, how can you be a trustee of Sports Aid when you're opening the gateway to these people? And my answer to her was, I have to believe that things will change. And I can't rely on other people exclusively doing it. I've got to get involved as well and do what I can. And uh, and that's it, I think. That's what... Um, that's your that sense of purpose, nearly. To, to go yeah. and try and make the changes. Yeah, that and Fred the dog are what gets me out of bed in the morning. And it, it, can things change, Ian, do you think? Will they change? Yeah. I've got to, you've got to believe that. And... They may or may, you know, I do um, have the pleasure and the privilege to uh, give a number of lectures in HE to different mm. students in different sports type courses. And I, and I say to these guys, this is, this is, the, this, this is how I see it, right, based on my experience. And my time is, you know, one, I can't do it on my own, and two, and of a certain age, you know, I can't do it forever. So here's the battle. Now, I would suggest to you that you run towards 12 o'clock, run with it, run forwards. And if you end up at 11 o'clock or one o'clock, I don't care, change will have happened and ownership will have been transferred. So what's, what do you see as the biggest challenges that we've got going forward in, in this, um in the sports system, both at the lower end and the high performance end. You've mentioned sort of the work you're doing around helping those that help others, you, the, the health and well-being and the mental health of athletes. What, what are the big challenges you envisage going forward? Well, you can put any of, and this isn't, a, this isn't a definitive list, right? But here we are in a health and economic crisis. So how will sport be funded? Um, uh, in the next four-year funding cycle towards Paris, if that's how it works. Yeah. That's one thing. Two, I think that a group that I feel uh, I feel some empathy and sympathy with are coaches. Um, and I have the pleasure of working with UK Coaching now because they didn't get uh, as high a profile looking in the duty of care review as the athletes. Um, <laughs> and if you come back to my who's looking after the people looking after the people that's coaches looking after athletes and I think you know they, in the main in the sports I've been involved in get a bad, bad press by association there are thousands I'm sure of fantastic coaches in gymnastics but all we're hearing about is, is the, the bad cases and at this stage, their allegations are not substantiated. So I think that's that's a big challenge. I think um, 
next generation of volunteers and officials, I think is also huge. Um, you know, I did, I did some, I ran a workshop for Sport Northern Ireland, which was aimed at their people in their national government bodies that look after um, officials. And it took place online at the early stages of lockdown. And I remember somebody saying, you know, I haven't seen my daughter for eight weeks, which means I haven't seen my granddaughter for nine. And this COVID has made me think about what's important to me. And I think there's a, there's a lot of people who can't wait to get back into officiating for, for whatever reason. Well, not quite yet understanding what their obligations are under COVID. And there are others who just go, enough. You know, there was, there was a piece on Twitter point um, put there by Ref Support UK, um, a referee assaulted by a player, mm. um, and the uh, Crown Prosecution Service said that there was not enough evidence to press charges, it just was caution. And it was the most horrific video, 10 seconds I've seen for a while. So there's loads of challenges to create the framework from grassroots um, going forward, I think. I'm going to draw us towards um, some quickfire questions in a minute to just really give some tangible sort of outcomes, hopefully, for our listeners. But just before I go there, you know, I'm, again, I'm just drawn towards there are, there are some real challenges, both with the current health and economic sort of pressures, but also the sports systems under, under some strain or questioning. And, and I'm just wondering, you know, if there was any one or two things that you would encourage or recommend or say, this is a must we need to do around the duty of care and the duty of care framework, what would that be? The, the perennial challenge, I think, is uh, a phrase that I use that sport is allowed to mark its own homework. And I think if you're inside the bubble, maybe that's fine, but there are good people and bad people. If you're outside, you know, if you stand, <laughs> you stand in, uh, to quote Atticus Fink, I didn't understand the other person's point of view until I stood inside his shoes and walked around. If you're the parent of a young gymnast, for example, right? It must be like trying to stick a needle in a haystack. And, and have I hit the right place? Would I know? Well, I had this with the athletes when I was doing the investigations at the BAC. What's the point in coming forward and risking my health when I know nothing will get done? Well, that's just sad. So, you know, Tani recommended an independent ombudsman. Whether it goes as far as an ombudsman could be debated, but I think some independent um, Check, scrutiny. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that would give people confidence uh, going forward. I think that would be a really strong move in the right direction well Ian you know I, I think that it's such a complex uh, and um, difficult environment to really get right and I think it's down to people like yourselves really pushing it forward and asking the questions we need to keep on that journey really and be the conscience of the system to keep it checked and also keep it some external scrutiny so you know thanks for suggesting that and also for bringing that to our attention and you know I think for many of the listeners as well it's also really useful to hear a little bit of a behind the scenes kind of viewpoint because there's so much goes on which we don't see by just watching the sports on the telly and and we just take it as face value so thanks again for being so open and honest about that journey your insights but also the personal commitment and the energy and the uh, sacrifices that you've given to it before we just sort of draw to a close though what i also would like to do is just give some of the listeners some kind of tangible tips to try and help them. And from your vast experience, what I really like, both from being outside of the sport world and also being a volunteer and actually having quite a senior position in a high-performance environment, what kind of books or references might you steer people to that really resonated with you and, and helped you on your journey? Just one or two. Ooh, books. The, um, you know, in some ways, I didn't have time to understand that's a good copy, right? But the, um, the, the, the book, is it Legacy, the book that's written, uh, written about the All Blacks? Yeah, Jim Kerr, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's, um, there's nothing wrong in, in, in that and some great advice. The, um, I became, because of that mental health and well-being, yeah, I've become yeah. a big fan of 
Brenny Brown. Yeah. The, um, so anything that she says does is worth a listen. The, um, I think, you know, I think I took my, actually I took my inspiration more, I, the stories that I sort of was exposed to were the stories of the athletes. Right. Um, and, and they were um, humbling and, and, and I was privileged to be given that insight into their lives. And that was, you know, I, I went into the BAC as a white, middle-aged, monogamous, heterosexual, right? But Church of the BAC had the most diverse and cosmopolitan congregation to see. And eligibility, are you good enough? Right, you're in, right? And so that's what all the athletes had in common. But you stand inside of the shoes of somebody else that you're not. In my case, uh, somebody of colour, somebody who's gay, a woman, somebody with a disability. The insight's phenomenal. And, and that hugely changed my perspective. And that's what was probably uh, not only an inspiration, but a reinforcement in my values. Wow. And, and you leave a real strong message there for everybody to maybe just consider that for themselves. You know, stepping in the shoes of somebody else. See mm. what it looks like from their perspective. And that's something that you've learned so much on and gained so much inspiration and insight from. Yeah, I wasn't a bad man when I went in, you know what I mean? But I feel a better person for coming out. Coming out, yeah. yeah. Great stuff. And Ian, you've also mentioned about you preparing yourself for work um, and being the best version of yourself and the highs and the lows. In a nutshell, how, how do you now prepare yourself? You've mentioned, you've mentioned Fred the dog. Is there anything else that really helps you become um, well, both physically and mentally? And what would guidance or advice would you give? I should give Mrs. Braid a shout out in that, shouldn't I? She'll <laughs> come soon. Don't worry. I'll come to her in a second. <laughs> All right. Okay. The, um, look, I don't think this is easy, right? And although I, I, I have this mantra, which I share with people, um, that was initially originally given to me by Professor David Lavalle, who also worked with Tanya and Vita Claire. And when I was ill, he used to ring me or write to me and check in, which is brilliant. And he used to finish every conversation by saying, give and take care. And I thought, this is lovely. And it sort of pierced my arm. And I thought, oh, he's a very gentle man. He's a, a Anyway, when I set up DocuSport, I thought, right, I'm having this. But I rang him and I said, I'm having this give and take care for you. I'm going to turn it around, take and give care. Because if you don't take care of yourself, then you're no good giving care to anyone else. Family, friends, colleagues, whatever. And I try and live by that. But as I say, you know, it's not easy and things, life challenges you to continue to walk that walk. Um, and I've not always been great at it since, but um, I return to it almost like it's an anchor point to reach out. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I guess I try and do something every day about it, but that's not always the case. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Great. Two more questions then, Ian. One question, you, you've also mentioned that a couple of people along your story and your journey, who's been most influential and impacted on you along your journey? Well, the Tanya is one. I would walk through fire for that one. The, um, she, she taught me a lot about him. She was almost like my mentor in the year about I'm in a mess here. I'm in this high performance job and uh, help me through this. And we, she helped me through that and we worked together on duty of care. But, but more holistically than that, I think her, uh, her journey is an incredible journey. Um, so she'd be one. Um, I, uh, there's a guy called Ed Simpson who is one of my best friends. He was also um, my lawyer when I was um, looking to leave the BAC and making sure that was all 
they were fair on both sides. Um, uh, he was my go-to man, Fred the dog. The, I probably lose sight. You know, when I when I was ill, I I thought that my family were walking away from me. They couldn't be further than the truth. I was walking backwards away from them. And they stuck by that and went through a lot of worry and concern about me. Um, and they are my biggest people. They may not understand yeah, no. some of the stuff I get involved in, but that doesn't matter, right? They, so yeah, um, yeah. There's 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 select few, um, uh, and I know there's many. It's just the ones that resonate and come to mind, and I, I can hear the importance of those two or three people, and and crucially your family during the the periods of the highs and the lows of the uh, of the time you've worked in sport. You know, you also mentioned there the stories that you've picked up from the athletes that you've been involved with over the time, and and the power of them, and actually that really resonates with the principle of the sports stories podcast, you know, about sharing stories and helping other people make their own stories and the power of that. Whose sports story might you like to hear more about, Ian, given that you've also heard so many along the way, but is there anybody you haven't or anybody's who you would recount as being a really impactful stories for some of our, our listeners? I, I tell you one that's worth following, right? And it's easy to pick up. It's not somebody that I helped when I was at the BAC, but certainly I got to know very well afterwards who was relevant. And it's um, uh, an Olympic silver medalist who would describe himself or did describe himself as therefore first loser. Uh, a guy called Michael Jameson, who was, a, as I say, a swimmer. And you can find a TED talk, TEDx talk he did at, I think, Stratford University. And an MJ beat himself up so hard for coming second in the London Games. So hard that other aspirations that he had unraveled. But he's eventually found peace. And so he should, because he's a brilliant man and he was a brilliant athlete. And that TEDx talk is his my work here is done, and he was able to move on. And then, he's just a brilliant guy, uh, and brilliant story, and I won't ruin it anymore. Oh, no, that's really powerful. I think that's also part of the Sports Stories podcast principle. It's not just about hearing everybody that's been to the top. It's about actually our journey makes us who we are, and it's actually worth unravelling it and understanding it. And, you know, just what you've already shared there is fantastic. Ian, you know, you've only shared a very small part of everything that you've been involved in and, and the topics of mental health, you know, and the athlete well-being and helping those that help others is so very important. Should any of our listeners be keen to find out a bit more about your story and your journey, how might they be able to hear a bit more about it from you or about Dockier Sport? At Dockier, D-O-C-I-A, capitals underscore sport, S-P-O-R-T. Um, I, as Ian Braid, uh, I use LinkedIn a lot, so find me on LinkedIn, see a bit more about my background there. Uh, Docusport.co.uk, do with a refresh, but that's another point of entry. They, um, too busy, no, you know how it is. So yeah, no, if I could um, offer some help or advice to anybody else, I'd be delighted to do so. Well, Ian... I'll, I'll make sure that those um, contact details are on the show notes for the podcast, should anybody want to pick those up from there. Um, but my last thing for me to say would just to be a, a huge thank you to you for sharing what you've shared. Uh, and, and most importantly, actually, the vulnerability and the, you know, I can see some of the, the lows that you've been through, but also actually some of the fantastic work that you've done, the difference you've made to other people in your role as a, a helper of others. You know, and I think it's, it's really important not to lose sight that you've often been in the background of helping so many other people so keep up the good work um, and I, I hope you'll come back onto the sports stories podcast in a year or so's time and share a little bit more about how how things are progressing with docu sport but thanks again good luck with all the good work um, and you know take and give care thank you very much and thank you for your kind words um, i hope there's been something in there for somebody somewhere sure there has thanks very much Ian. So that was such a lovely insight into the sporting journey of Ian Braid from a young volunteer at Fleetwood Rugby Club through to supporting elite athletes in his role as the CEO of the British Athletes Commission. 
Now, since the recording of the podcast, Ian has been in contact with the news that Nina Ford, volunteer chair of the British Triathlon South East region, has very sadly passed away. From talking with Ian, it was clear that Nina typified all that is good about the volunteers in sport. Both myself and Ian would therefore like to dedicate this episode of the Sports Stories podcast to all the volunteers in sport and Nina in particular. With this sad news and the stories Ian has shared, it has made me reflect on the time we give for no financial reward. What it is we give, but as importantly, what we get in return. So the questions I would like to pose today are, where and how do you give time to others? And what is the nourishment you get from doing this? And secondly, Ian talked about duty of care, mental health, and they use the term take and give care. How do you give care to yourself? And what is your gauge to know what is working for you and what is not? I often refer to the aeroplane story that you have to put your own gas mask on before helping others. For me, this is so relevant for all of us in life that if we are not in a good place ourselves, then how can we help, serve and support others? Please do make contact if the questions really resonate with you. I'd be delighted to hear your thoughts or point you in the direction of further support. Leave a comment on the usual social network channels or please make contact through the website www.sportstories247.com. I've been really humbled and blown away by the comments and feedback received from listeners over the past few months. The Sports Stories podcast is here to ultimately make a positive difference to people's lives in sport, out of sport and through sport and support them to be the best versions of themselves. I'm therefore really excited to say that in the next week or so, a free resource will become available, sharing 10 simple skills that you can develop through sport, a set of resources and some self-assessment tools and a lot of practical guide and value. This will be followed by the launch of the Sports Stories Academy. So keep an eye out for more details, again on all social media channels or subscribe to the pod so you don't miss anything. So we draw to a close another fabulous insight into the world of sport from a volunteer and CEO perspective. Join me again next week where we will have more opportunities to gain insight and inspiration. We have some cracking guests lined up and maybe not what you might expect. Thanks again to today's guest and in Nina Ford's name, thanks to all the sports volunteers. And finally, thank you, the listener, for joining me. I look forward to having you join me again next week on the Sports Stories podcast. <laughs>